this podcast, including any related materials, such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. The podcast presenters' views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of their research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Dr. Kara Fitzgerald joins us on this episode of The Practice to discuss the integration of our new understanding of methylation with practical applications to prevent or reverse unwanted symptoms. Where do patients and practitioners begin without overspending on testing? What insights can be collected using the tools of functional medicine? How much can we accomplish with diet and lifestyle? I believe functional medicine, honestly, I haven't come across any other model that's as well suited to take this picture and sort of data sort it into a meaningful way where we can then have actionable steps in practice. Dr. Fitzgerald reveals how much we can do to support our health and longevity with the most simple changes informed by functional medicine. She focuses heavily on the things that we can do to affect the gut and its relationship to immune health. Plus, Dr. Fitzgerald gives us a quick primer on the herbal bioactive constituents in the hops plant that possess antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer, and even neuromodulating and hormone balancing properties. She'll also give us a sneak peek into her current methylation study and its relationship to genetic expression. And she covers the effects of hypermethylation on genes that can suppress cancer. Listen to this episode of The Practice to grow your understanding of methylation and its effects on modulating gene expression and impacting immune health. Kara, it's so great to be with you today. Likewise, Sarah, it's nice to catch up with you, especially in person. Yeah, for sure. So I want to I want to start with how we met. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a while ago, maybe mm-hmm. seven plus years, mm-hmm. something like that. Yep. And we were put together on a webinar. Yes. And I remember we had kind of a pre conversation. Yes. And then it was a total love fest during yeah. the webinar. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I I remember. Here's what stood out for yeah. me so vividly. I I loved how deep you could go. Ah. I loved how you could, you know, translate health into something so quantifiable mm-hmm. and so clear for all different levels of practitioners in this particular webinar. But I also, I loved how, how you focused on case studies. Because mm. I remember, I think you had just published your first book ah. of case studies and you yeah. sent it to me. And I read this oh, case great. studies book and I was just like, oh my gosh, wow. this is pure gold. So did you always know? that you wanted to do this? First of all, I just want to thank you for that. That's so fabulous, Sarah. I'm just thrilled that you that you read the book and metabolite. I know it 
just was an astonishing project and one for which I've just got much gratitude for having been able to participate in. And I think it, it just has, it's, it's really important that we write down what it is that we do, that we try to capture, you know, and codify um, the transformation. So in terms of knowing that this was what I wanted to do, you know what? I didn't. I mean, so I think I have a similar background to you as yours in that I was raised by um, a really pretty aware mom mm-hmm. and my grandmother was, was, was aware as well. I mean, I remember Walnut Acres. We used to get packages from them because it's where my mom could actually get organic stuff delivered, whole grain, that kind of thing way back before it was in groceries, we had a garden. We didn't call it organic. We did, Of course, we didn't use pesticides, but my mom was savvy. She fed us brewer's yeast and the things that were in vogue then. So you had this sense, kind of this lens yeah. with which you looked at food. Yes, yes, yes. But what's extraordinary was that it Fairly quickly, I got that the foundation that my mom had built our nutritional kind of lifestyle existence on was incredibly sound and that she had this this knowing uh, and the ability to actualize it against such resistance because we were really kind of an outlier family, her having the guts to, to do this and she got a lot of resistance from us, you know, really made, gave us kind of a, 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 you know, a fortitude, both nutritionally, I think, but also psychologically, that without question shaped my career, like unequivocally. So I didn't know it then, but certainly when I came back to it, it was a a coming home. I love this. So you you had sort of this this development of fortitude that began very early. And it sounds like you, you went to school probably with lunches like mine. I had these kind of sandwiches that were the thickest, chewiest, densest spread, you yes. know, like dark, dark brown yeah. Yeah. with like homemade yeah. peanut butter yeah. or almond butter, yeah. That's exactly a little right. bit of local that honey. That is so funny. <laughs> Sarah, I grew up with that. Actually, my mom took it a step further, God bless her, and sent me to school one day with that same bread and, um, you know, packed with sardines. Oh, there you go. Yes. And so when I opened my lunch, I remember vividly, or at least, at least I've metabolized it this way in my memory, I cleared the table. <laughs> <laughs> my mom was feeding us sardines. You know, my body had a hint of omega-3 fatty acids when I was growing up as a part of daily life. So, you so know, again, good. I have to give her the I, yeah, hats off. So good. So take us through your career up to the current iteration, because you've had this lovely evolution um, from Portland, Mm -hmm. from training to be a physician, residency, you were in a lab for a while, you do clinical research, you're one of the best educators we have, I would say, in functional medicine. So take us through that path with the focus on how you landed here now. Well, you know, when I was choosing medical schools, I was in in a health food store at a time. And again, that came from my mom. We were a part of a co-op. So I worked at a co-op when I was a really little kid and then landed in a health food store was, and that influenced my choice. You know, do I go for an MD and do I go for the conventional structure or for an ND? And I, and so I decided to go into naturopathic medicine and that was, um, it was, it was a little bit of a jump. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to get into. I just kind of had this blind faith. And incidentally, at that time, I was really interested in Udo Erasmus, fats that heal, fats that kill, I think was the title. 
and he gets into a little bit of biochemistry in that book. So I had that little piece of information that I had off, headed off to school to um, with. And I, I actually was in, you know what, I was interested in mechanisms actually back then as well in the, when I worked in the supplement section. So I was sort of a budding, you know, what I was to become. Headed off to Portland. School was incredibly inspirational deeply nourishing at so many levels from Jill Stansberry introducing um, pleomorphic bacteria to us, you know, cell wall deficient forms, you know, to, um, you know, the stealth infections that we work with in clinical practice all the time now, you know, being introduced in one of my first classes as a freshman to, you know, really getting into, you know, marrying the um, kind of the molecular biochemical pathophysiological mechanisms with the bigger picture with physiology and then you know considering it within the context of lifestyle and you know the timeline of somebody's existence like this you know so naturopathic medical school was um, a re, it's a functional medicine existence um, it's a functional medicine training and it was it was very interesting to me as with many of us, I was able to see Dr. Bland lecture early mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. And he, what year was this? I, it was early 2000s. And I okay. think he was talking about hops at the time. He was talking mm. about some of the active constituents of hops and, you know, just walking us through the pathways of what they're doing. Do you remember that phase of his? Well, I, it was about a 10-year phase, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but could, oh, you, okay. could you just give us like a quick primer on hops? Like, why should we care about hops? Especially for maybe our citizen scientists who don't really understand what hops is about. Well, it's a pretty extraordinary, it's a pretty extraordinary botanical. I mean, isn't it? Wouldn't you say? I mean, how many active constituents, how many medically active constituents are there? I mean, I'm almost, I'm really kind of being rhetorical because they're probably still under uncovering, you know, many of them are still being characterized and sort of understood. There's a reason we love beer. <laughs> There's a reason we've been brewing it, you know, using hops in this way for millennia. Um, they ha- so there's antioxidant properties. There's potent anti-inflammatory. There's neuromodulating properties in hops. Um, there, there are hormonal, hormone modulating properties. I mean, it really kind of covers, it covers all the bases. I mean, there are potent anti-cancer properties. There are properties in hops that augment epigenetic expression. So that interface between genetic expression and environment, you know, those little marks on our DNA that cause it to express or not express. Hops can actually favorably, um, alter what's happening at that level. And it actually, that's one of the mechanisms that make it, um, you know, it's fight against cancer. It's protective mechanism. Uh, so I'm really kind of in love with hops at the moment. I mean, Jeff discovered it like decades ago, but I'm, for some reason now lately, I've been coming upon the, the wonderment of hops. And I think he did a lot of the landmark research. Yes, he did. Yeah. So it's, it's in the 2000s. Part of what I'm hearing from you is a love of mechanism. Yes. A focus on the why. I hear yes. that as a through line too. Yeah. So how did that then lead to where you are now? You know what's interesting to me is that something about understanding, touching upon mechanisms is for me kind of spiritual in a way. Yes. And, and I think it's sacred. It really is. And when you actually put your finger on you know, elucidating a mechanism where it's aha to you, 
you know, the thing that always happens right after that for me is that it leads to so many other things. And there's also, there tends to be sort of a harmony and, and kind of a symmetry around understanding. And I always have to pause and wonder about, you know, kind of the prime mover, like where did this come from, this incredibly elegant design that goes on and on, and that we're only just touching on a point. So as I unfolded that and realized, you know, really in part through, through Dr. Bland, um, that that's what was happening, my passion around biochemistry just skyrocketed. And so I was very excited Again, it seems like you know serendipity that I discovered that there was this postdoctorate position in laboratory science at Metametrics Lab in Atlanta, Georgia. I couldn't believe how perfect it was for me and that my director was a nutritional biochemist. And so he's my mentor to this day, Dr. Richard Lord. And I just was swimming in... in utter joy. I mean, it was, I, I described it too as being like a, a vertical learning curve. It was straight up. It was intense. I worked really, really hard in the lab, but oh my God, did I love it. And I was so inspired. That became, so we had a think tank in the lab. Uh, education was deeply honored and nurtured in the laboratory. So we had our own laboratory rounds and we had a, a real think tank in our medical education department. We published laboratory evaluations in integrative and functional medicine. Mm -hmm. And then I went on to write the case book. In fact, when I first landed in the lab, I wrote a white paper, I co-authored with a white paper on low homocysteine, thinking about the implications of low homocysteine with, with Richard. Um, but we kept, we nurtured each other by reading the latest science and pinning it together with the other things that we knew. And how do we look at this in the analytes that we're measuring in the laboratory? And then how do we translate this to delivering better care and to turning around pathology before it even happens? You know, that's how we rolled. And so it was from, after I left the lab, which I finished the casebook that you mentioned early, earlier, and I started my own practice. So I came back home to Connecticut mm -hmm. from Atlanta and finished the book. The book was released. I was in my own clinical practice. Actually, I was in a pain management, a tertiary mm -hmm. care pain management mm -hmm. center for a while, which mm -hmm. was very informative and I think also important to be in that world. Okay, so this pain clinic, I wanna get into this because yeah. I feel like it's so interesting, especially for folks who are yeah. just starting in functional medicine, yeah. to have a sense of what do you do when you've got fewer tools? Yes. What do you do when you can't do a $10,000 workup? Yes. Like, where do you start? Yeah, that's right. I imagine you did where things do like, you start? like ah. elimination diet, Not which only, yeah. can do so much. That's right, you're exactly right, Sarah. Where do you start? So you've got A, extremely challenging patients. I mean, these patients, if you're in a tertiary care pain center, you're in chronic, you know, deep pain. Yes. Um, and they're polypharmacy. There are many medications. Um, they tend to have really poor lifestyle habits. They're smokers. You know, the di their diet is horrendous. I'm generalizing, but that is the demographic that I most often saw. Sure. And it's true. And so one of the big things I had to be worried about too were nutrient drug interactions. I mean, I had to practice very safe medicine. And as you pointed out, I didn't have the ability to use the tools that I was trained in to the extent that I was trained in and nor were the financials there for me to be able to do it. Yeah, so it's when, this is when we really go back to very foundational functional medicine and we trust that it works. And it's an important experience. I think it's, it's extremely important for any clinician 
in functional medicine, transitioning into functional medicine, to be in a situation where you only have, quote, the bottom of the matrix, as they say. You can only use, you know, the most basic lifestyle intervention. So let's start here because yeah. I think this is super juicy. So what is the bottom of the matrix? Like, what are those mm. foundational pieces that a practitioner who's just starting or even maybe a listener who yes. is just starting to think about functional medicine or going to see a functional medicine doctor or someone yeah. who practices precision medicine? So tell us about what those foundational pieces are. Yeah, extremely important. Um, sleeping. You know, sleeping. Are you sleeping? Is pain keeping you awake? In my, you know, in the in the context of my practice, are you breathing? Do you have sleep apnea? So sleep, quality of sleep, movement, you know, exercise, um, relationships, stress, and of course nutrition. What are we eating? Um, how often? How well? You know, what? Where? Where is your food coming from? I think it's essential that we all know how powerful they are. And if you're not in the experience that I was where you're, you know, your real your hands are tied to use some of the really sophisticated interventions that we use, you won't get a chance to trust this. You yes. won't get a chance to really trust um, you know, one of my he's still a patient of mine today. He's just such a great a great guy. He what he came to me on 19 different medications including fentanyl. And it was through those bottom of the matrix, very simple lifestyle interventions. Everybody who's on opioids tends to be deficient in magnesium. And there's some basic things that I learned along the way. So simple nutrition, simple supplement prescription for him. An, an elimination diet, that's exactly what I did. The basic elimination diet, you know, we lowered sugar. He was a smoker. He wanted to quit. I mean, that was his plan and his motivation. He de he wanted to detox off of his medications, so he detoxed off his fentanyl. I mean, he it was an ex it was a remarkable journey, just a remarkable journey to get to, and an honor to get to walk with him. And I, you know, I'm thrilled that I continue to, you know, many years later, and and that was simple functional medicine. I love this. Yeah. So, define functional medicine. Define the kind of medicine that you practice. Right. Well, functional medicine is the clinical application of systems medicine. I just I think that's like beautifully succinct. But then you need to know what systems medicine is or systems biology. Um, it's it's the whole being. We're considering the whole person in their environment, but not just the here and now environment. The lifetime of environment. And if we consider genetics and if we consider epigenetics, we're looking even before that. Honestly, I haven't come across any other model that's as well suited to take this picture and sort of data sort it into a meaningful way where we can then have actionable steps in practice. So that's what functional medicine is to me. Beautiful. I love it. And I love how you teach practitioners the data sorting. Yeah. Because the data sorting is pretty complex. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And as the data gets bigger and bigger and yes. bigger, bigger, it's it's getting more complex. Yes. I feel like having a sense of, you know, not not losing the forest for the trees. Yes. Um, That's know, right. Having, having that That's sense exactly that you right. have, I think, is so important as an educator. Yeah. Well, you know, again, coming back to my time in the, in the pain center, relying on very simple tools certainly helped. I mean, you see what interventions can 
be miraculous. You can see the power of diet or an anti-inflammatory diet or eliminating certain food. It's not just limited to nutrition intake when you change the diet. You're radically altering the microbiome. You're reducing the inflammatory load systemically, but you're also healing leaky gut as well and reducing the inflammation that's happening within the gut. You know, you're changing the microbiome um, composition, you're impacting how they interact with the rest of the being. And then, of course, you're restoring micronutrients at the end of the day. You've improved digestion. It's a, I could go on and on with um, what a powerful leverage point diet is. And, and I do find in my teaching of other professionals that um, they'll want to have something specifically for gut or they'll mm -hmm. want to have something specifically for mitochondrial function um, or for sleep. If, if we take the time to really think through each intervention and how it applies in a system, you'll see that very simple things can go a long, long way. I agree. It's like the small hinges that swing yes. big doors. Yes. So I feel like I can go deep in so many different places with you. You brought up the gut, and I want to mm -hmm. actually talk about that on, yep. on sort of a foundational level. You you brought up methylation, the methylome. I think of you in terms of gut and immunity. Mm -hmm. I've learned so much from you about that. I just was reading something you wrote, or maybe it was a video, about how we've got to think about intestinal permeability, not as this on-off switch. Yes, but as kind of the spectrum, this continuum, yes. and there's so many factors that are involved. Yes. So let's back up to the gut. And I, I have kind of a funny question for you. Do you have any patients who don't have gut issues? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's a great question. You know, a, a patient who comes to me who says they have no gut issues, it, it's suspicious, right? right. Being nice, I'm being nice about it. No. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> no, kind of, we it's kind of like, you know, do I have any patients who don't have HPA dysregulation? Yes, that's right. I, I've had like two over right. the past 25 oh, years. Oh, that's amazing. And what did they come to you for? They must have come to you for wellness and preventative things. Or... Well, they were people that I tested as part of like a control. Oh, okay. I was going to say. <laughs> they, they, weren't, they weren't having any symptoms, yeah. right? Um, so I think... Gut is so foundational. It's yes. such a huge part of systems biology. It's yes. such a huge part of the work that you do. So tell us a bit about how you think about gut in your approach to health. Mm. So it sounds like you kind of map with the matrix as you're mm -hmm, listening mm -hmm. to a patient's story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, many of us say, my dear friend Tom Salt among, among them, when in doubt, start with the gut. When in doubt, start with the gut. I think many of us have embraced that. You know, it's a huge leverage area for impacting total person, total being. So when in doubt, we start with the gut. It's the interface, it's the largest interface between self and non-self. Um, it's the bulk of our immune system. Um, it's the pounds of, of microbial material that, you know, delicately interact with our immune system and sort of interact with the other environmental things that we're introducing. You can't overstate the importance of the gut. So it factors into everyone who I'm working with. If only, you know, in the more, most simple cases, because I'm starting with diet and diet will immediately change the microbiome. But beyond that, I'm introducing other things and we're going more intentionally towards altering what's happening with the gut. But to your point, Sarah, is that it, it plays a huge role in all of the cases, a big, important piece. 
Do you have any cases that you can share with us that are inspiring or maybe change the way that you thought about the gut? Right. Yeah, I do. It's a combination of case and science. And so, well, and clinical experience and observation. As we know, you know, for some people in particular, but I think for all of us, what's happening in our gut, you know, this teeming, um, vast microbiome really influences how we think and feel. I mean, that seems to me logical and it seems to be reflecting in what we see in our patients. And um, research is now bearing this out. And so there was one woman who um, repeatedly, you know, after much work together, continued to crave sugar enormously. And um, I mean, many of us do. You know, I've no, this is no judgment on her. But it was with this particular case when she sort of threw herself into my office and threw herself on the chair and just very, you know, with such shame, you know, looked at me and confessed again to having had a big sugar binge, you know, that I just blurted out to her, who am I talking to, you or your gut bugs? And I think that our gut microbiome really dictates what's going on with us, how we think, how we feel. I mean, really, as far as these guys are concerned, it's us against them. You know, they want to survive and they're going to do anything to survive. So if we actually, um, if we're not feeding them, they're going to die. And that doesn't make them happy. So research is bearing out that, that our microbiome can release certain compounds that some of these critters can actually make neurotransmitters or precursors of neurotransmitters or things that make us feel really toxic, you know, and release them to either help their survival or sort of, you know, give us a microbial high five when we're eating the right things. But a lot of, a lot of times what's right for them, particularly the pathological bugs um, or the, or the dysbiotic bugs isn't right for us. And so this is such a crucial point because what you're saying is, am I talking to you and this willpower that you're trying to develop with the sugar cravings and the ice cream and the donuts and whatever else she was eating or am I talking to your bugs? That's right. So I think I think this is such an important That's point. Right. And it's, you know, it's also maybe our greatest opportunity. Yes. You know, to figure out, okay, if the if the bad guys, I have a friend who calls them the Homer Simpson bacteria. Yeah. Like the dysbiotic yeah, bugs. Yeah. That's great. If if they're the ones that are running the show, mm-hmm. like we've got to have a strategy for yeah. how to tame them. Yes, yes, yes. How to you know, reduce their count. Yes. And then we also have these virtuous ones. I don't have a name for them that fits within the Simpsons, (laughs) (laughs) the good bugs. How do we promote them? Yeah. So we know that prebiotics are incredibly effective. You've also had good experiences with probiotics. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about how we manage that. Well, the biggest thing, you know, the most essential piece is that we have to change. So we're going to change those guards most powerfully by, our diet. I mean, that's the biggest, again, intervention that we can do. And really, quite simply, I think we need to educate our patients then when, that when that microbial transition is happening, you know, when you've changed your diet, you might feel extremely lousy for a while, you know, and it may be a weekend. If you're somebody who's been a pretty profound sugar addict and you're going to move away from that, what I suggest to people to do 
is to give themselves a good, juicy, luxurious weekend of, you know, lots of Netflix or massages or, you know, whatever it is that they want, you know, or maybe they commit to a Broadway show or just really giving themselves some sort of a gift as they go through this detox journey. Because as some of these dysbiotic critters are dying, they're going to release noxious compounds to make us feel lousy that actually can trigger the binge cycle. It can prompt us. It's what induces these cravings. So are you in the driver's seat of your life or is your gut microbiome driving the car? And while we're changing that, it can, we can feel lousy for a while. Now to really bring about a lasting change and to um, dial down the cravings, we want to definitely lean on probiotics. We need to lean on prebiotics. We will probably be doing some botanical antimicrobials and so forth. So there's a broader intervention structure that we want to use and in the beginning and for the long haul. But that early period where you do the most intensive changing, um, you know, with the dietary shift, you know, expect to feel lousy and really cut yourself some, some slack and do whatever you need to do. Another part I love with this particular case mm -hmm. is that I hear the subtext of compassion. Mm -hmm. That it's not a simple, like, yes, no compliance issue. Yeah. It's, you know, almost the civil war that happens within ourselves. Yes. And, you know, kind of the debate, do I, don't I? You yeah. know, do I have the cookie? Do I not have the cookie? Yeah. Like, it's, it's not as simple as willpower. So I, I really like how you're bringing the sense of nuance yeah. to what we were maybe taught was kind of a simple compliance issue. Yes. And I think that this whole understanding is going to be shaken out considerably, you know, because it, 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 it really isn't, or willpower spells, plays a very small role. I think that a big chunk of it are bugs gunning for survival. You know, and really kind of pulling, if you're a marionette, you know, they're kind of, they're trying to dictate what you, you know, what you put into your mouth so that they can survive. I mean, it's really that simple. So when we do something drastic to, you know, usher them out of our, our existence, they can, um, I think that they can pull some powerful strings. They can. Yeah. And, I, and, and along with that, there's also these things we can do, mm -hmm. you know, that, a patient can feel empowered. Yes. That there's, you know, the nutrient-dense food. Yeah. There's a way to feed. Yep, yep, yep. The more virtuous yep, yep, yep. bugs. Yep. There's choices you can make, especially with breakfast. Yes. Like, it's these small steps that yes. really add up yes. over time. And in some ways, I think when, when we consider health as a skill set, as kind of, you know, this ever-growing sense of skills that we develop, it's that disciplined choice you know, of what you put mm -hmm. on your plate, what you put on your fork. I think that's where this starts. And eventually this is, this is the feel good. So for people who haven't made the transition yet and think that the foods that aren't so great for them are actually great because they taste palatable, you know, once you move, once you, once the microbiome has changed, you know, once you feel alive, energetic, once you sort of experience the benefits you know, it's just, it's very positively reinforced, you know, many times over, you know, we'll get it. Where do you start? So if you're assessing a patient, I imagine you've got your list of questions that mm -hmm. you're going to ask. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you do a physical exam. You have a process that you use. Can mm -hmm. you give us some of the highlights 
of how you assess the gut and maybe how it's changed over time. You know, we're in this era now of, you know, we used to have kind of the stool testing (laughs) that was, you know, so rough and um, kind of static. And now, you know, we're evolving. I I feel like we're still at the learning to crawl stage when it comes to the microbiome and understanding the nuances of it. But can you, can you take us through sort of how you assess and how that's evolved? We are still, we are in the learning phase. Um, Well, once upon a time we were doing culture. We're still using culture in some cases to see what bugs grow out. Um, If you've got a profound infection, you know, if you've got C. diff colitis, you'll probably be able to identify that. Um, If you've got, you know, a nasty Giardia, you'll probably be able to identify that, you know, in some of the older techniques. But looking at subtle perturbations, we're only now, you know, since we've moved into um, genomic analysis of our microbiome. We're only now beginning to see it. But the other question is, what are we seeing and how do we shift it and, and so forth? So I think when I first, you know, when I first started analyzing the gut, it was mostly clinical, you know, and maybe a, a bit of an abdominal exam. You know, we were changing diet. We didn't have the benefit of Fasano and knowing that intestinal permeability informs all of you know, on anything with regard to autoimmune and beyond that, it was a much simpler time. And I would say that the complexity of the issues that we were dealing with really were kind of less Mm -hmm. than what we're seeing now, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, so we've been on this, you know, fairly intense trajectory of more and more difficult types of um, gut pathologies to turn around. They use organic acids to analyze the gut. I think, you know, there's some interesting research there to see what our micro our microbes are actually producing. That can be interesting. And then I do use genomic analysis today to assist in guiding my treatments. I but you know, I suppose one of the areas that I, I think still is quite useful are the various chemistries, like looking at um, butyrate or looking at inflammatory markers like eosinophil protein X or calprotectin or lactoferrin. There's actually a host of those that I think are pretty useful. We can look at fats in the gut. We can look at our ability to digest foods. Those. So what I love about this is yeah. you're, you're talking about function. Yes. And I, I think this is such an important part of the conversation. You know, mm-hmm. I, I go to these conferences where you hear about acromanzia and you hear about, you know, kind yes. of the, all these different debates about um, diversity and, yes. and different organisms and species. I think when you when you dial it back and you look at function, like the butyrate, mm-hmm. the calprotectin, yep. the lactoferrin, it tells you a lot about what's actually going on inside yeah, the gut. Yeah, arguably at this point where we're still learning, I think it's great for us to be able to look at the microbiome these days as much as we can, but we are still learning. Um, However, we can look at function. We can pretty solidly. I mean, calprotectin is a decent, well-researched marker. It's going to tell us what's going on as far as inflammation, as does lactoferrin. Eosinophil protein X, I think, is a pretty cool marker. Um, So tell us why you care about that one. Eosinophilic protein X. Well, I think it, it's a it's a nice marker because I work with a lot of allergy patients, and we see like gut allergies on the rise, like eosinophilic um, gastroenteropathies, EOE, EO, you know, stomach, large intestines, small intestines. I mean, regardless, we see 
these kinds of conditions definitely increasing. And that marker will rise. We'll see that inflammatory marker increase in some of those patients. So it can be a bit of an insight. We might see it go up in somebody with a parasitic infection as well. We might see it go up in somebody with general inflammation who's just got a lot of eosinophils, you know, up and running in their gut. We might see it, you know, increase potentially in you know, some of these so-called mast cell activation pictures as well. So I think it's a, you know, I just think it's a useful additional marker for us and something that's actionable. So the thing about looking at function, all of those markers are really clearly actionable. The microbiome mar markers, they are actionable, but I think that it can be, uh, it's a little bit less clear as to how you're going to be leveraging them. Yes. Well, we still have so much to learn. A lot to learn. Yeah. I spent a lot of years doing bioinformatics. And so oh, I'm, you very, did. I'm very respectful of like what this process is going to look like. It's going to, I yes. think it's going to be a while before yes. we really are clear about what these data. Mean. Yes, 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 yes. So let me change directions a little bit. I want to go to our listener mm -hmm. who's maybe wondering if they have a gut issue or they're wondering if functional medicine could be helpful for them. So could you speak directly to that listener? Like what's, what would you say to someone who's, who's maybe thinking that they want to dip their toe mm -hmm. into um, the work of functional medicine? Yeah. I also think it's important to say, you don't have to have gut symptoms to have right. a problem right. with your gut. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that one can actually sidestep some imbalance in our microbiome if they're if we're living to any extent in the western world you know if we're engaging in this life here in the u.s and you know other highly developed kind of stressed out um running around poor eating um cultures you know, it's, it's just, it's hard to set, sidestep the impact that's going to have on the gut. I mean, I just don't think you can actually. You think about the factors yeah. that are going to impact the microbiome. Yeah. Diet, stress, mm -hmm. medications. Mm -hmm. Like those are the top three. Yes. And part of what you're saying is. Yeah. You can't avoid We can't sidestep that. Yeah, we can't. I mean, it's really kind of extraordinary that we have a blue zone in Loma, you know, in Loma Linda, it's that we true. actually have a blue zone in this country because of all of the stressors. I mean, the river, if we actually allow ourselves to flow with the westernized river, it's one that's going to move us towards disease. I suppose that would be my statement to folks who are wondering whether or not they should put their toe into functional medicine. You know, in my experience that if, unless we're intentionally choosing away from the dominant lifestyle paradigm, and unless we have some tools on how to do that for us, so you could ask Dr. Google and get some sort of big picture ideas that may or may not be helpful. But if you come to a functional medicine clinician, you're going to get individual ideas, you know, around how you can intentionally, you know, move away from the inevitable movement towards developing some kind of a chronic disease. That's a really helpful analogy, I think. Yeah. What are you most passionate about right now? The thing that I'm most passionate about, Sarah, and I know you're familiar with this, is our, we're doing a study looking at diet and lifestyle and its influence on the epigenome. So the interface, again, between genetic expression and lifestyle. 
So let me pause you for Mm -hmm. a moment. What is the epigenome? Can you break that down? Yeah. So the epigenome is epi on top of the genome gene. So it's those, it's variables or factors that influence genetic expression and they're biochemical. So, you know, the, one of the areas that I'm very interested is the placement of methylation groups of methyl groups onto different regions of the DNA. And then, as you know, if there's a lot of methyl groups, generally that's how we turn off a gene. And if there are less methyl groups, that's how we turn on a gene. So the question is, are you, do you have good genes turned on or do you have bad genes turned on? You know, you know, that's extremely black and white and overly simplified, but we've been supposing that what we do in functional medicine favorably influences the epigenome. And I would say that it's true because we see, you know, lifestyle expand, quality of life increase, inflammation drop, and so forth. So these are all favorable influences. But we haven't directly tested what's going on at the level of the epigenome. So in, that's what you're doing. Yeah, that's exactly So this right. is super exciting. So tell us more about this study that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So who's involved? Mm-hmm. What are you looking at? What's the intervention? We have, um, we're looking at, it's a pilot study. So we've got 40 men, 40 middle-aged men. And the reason that I wanted middle-aged is because I'm very interested in the aging process now myself. But the the reality is, is that as we, changes to our epigenome, changes to genetic expression, kind of turn up a little bit at different time points. And the aging process is one of them. 20 will be in our- men because they're a little simpler in we're terms looking of at, reproductive hormones? That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. So it's a small study. Uh, so we have to be careful. And if we had women of middle age, we would be dealing with some, you know, uh, some to perimenopausal to menopausal. And we don't have the numbers to be able to tease that out, unfortunately. And I obviously want to look at women. So I think based on what we see here, we'll be able to then go back and actually do a real study where we have both sexes and we we can tease that out. But we're studying with men, so we don't have that variable. And we're getting a bunch of baseline tests on them. And the one that I'm very interested in is um, measuring the epigenome. So we're going to be looking at what genes are turned on and what genes are turned off. Now, at baseline, we're thinking that they might have some imbalances, perhaps. And because then, they're part of this river. <laughs> yeah, they're part of this river. Exactly. Yep, they're in the current, um, whether they like it or not. And then we're introducing a very specific diet, a really nourishing, healthy diet, a diet that we built to favorably augment the epigenome. Um, We're giving them a probiotic, again, going back to our gut conversation, because gut regulates everything well beyond the gut, and genetic expression is no exception. So we're looking at gut um, or introducing something to the gut. And then we're also working with uh, what we call methylation adaptogens, uh, which is a concentrated green food. It's just so cool that you know research on concentrated polyphenols that you find in, in this setting or you know eating a pack of blueberries or whatever it is that you like to indulge in, favorably alters genetic expression. Actually, very powerfully. Again, you just can't underestimate the power, the power of these micronutrients. It's really pretty extraordinary. So that's it. That's it as far as our dietary or supplemental interventions. And then we're tracking people's sleep, we're tracking their exercise, and we're having them engage in meditation. So it's a full tilt lifestyle, eight-week intensive lifestyle intervention. And then we'll get um, laboratory data midway and at the end. 
We're actually almost done now. Incidentally, in order to be able to do this, we have a team of brilliant health coaches just supporting each of the participants. Which is so important, yeah, right? I mean, huge. I feel it's like- It's making the study. I feel like, you know, in my, over my career, I've had such a focus on the knowledge and the education. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's, it's half the equation. Like it's yeah. half the story. Yeah. You know, being able to, to integrate yes. that knowledge into your life is so crucial. So yeah. I, I love that you have health coaches. Yes. Oh, we wouldn't be able to do the study if we didn't have health coaches. I mean, we wouldn't be able to practice functional medicine without that kind of support. You know, somebody really holding people's hands, walking them through the journey of transformation. We need it. And this study is no exception. In fact, we're tracking outcome on the health coaches and how that works. The institute that's running our study is tracking how we actually do the study and whether our outcomes are improved because of how we're using the health coaches and so forth, because it is a challenging study to undertake and it wouldn't be successful if we didn't have people supporting them. I can't wait to yeah. see some of these results. Yeah. Do you have any analogies for what's happening with the epigenome? I feel like sometimes this can, you know, make the science come alive, especially for a non-science listener. Or maybe some examples. Like I remember listening to you at the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute. And yeah. you were talking about uh, tumor suppressor genes mm. and how they get hypermethylated. Mm-hmm. So could you maybe unpack that? I mm-hmm. think that's that's a really good yeah. way to kind of understand yeah, what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so our epigenome prompts genetic expression and is influenced, our epigenome is influenced by lifestyle exposures. So one of the very, so we know that there are these wonderful genes called tumor suppressor genes that just survey and keep cancer at bay. You know, they survey our body all the time. There's a, we like have many. Yes, like BRCA, like the BRCA gene. So we know if you have the BRCA mutation, your chances of getting cancer are, you know, I think 80% over the course of your time. So the older you get, the more likely you are, um, you're going to get cancer until it's basically a shoe in So the BRCA gene is an extremely important tumor suppressor gene. And there's just a host of others. In fact, there's many genes that we don't think of as tumor suppressor that have really important tumor suppressor roles. So... One of the things that happens when we're exposed to bad diet, when we're exposed to toxins, actually when we're exposed to you know, poor quality sleep, lack of exercise or imbalanced exercise, all of those lifestyle things that we've been talk- talking about today, they can, they can negatively impact genetic expression by changing the epigenome. So those all important tumor suppressor genes can be hypermethylated and shut down, and therefore our risk for cancer rises exponentially. We know when we look at genetics, as we do over and over again, we're always trying to see, is it the gene that's causing this? Is it a collection of genes that's causing you know, breast cancer, autism, Alzheimer? We're always trying to pinpoint the genetics, and we always come up short, and we're woefully disappointed. One of the new areas of really fervent investigation is what's changing in the epigenome. And we now see that, in fact, it's um, hypermethylation imbalances are happening um, all over the place and impacting all of those conditions. So going back to BRCA, you know, you could... you. Know, 
there, most breast cancers are not associated with a BRCA mutation, but we can see that- It's only about 20%. Or yeah, at the most, at the most. I think that's being generous. We'll mm -hmm. put this in the show notes, some of the detail about yeah. BRCA. Okay, okay. Uh, but we do know that hypermethylated BRCA will shut it down as if it were a mutation, and that's associated with breast cancer and some of the other hormone-sensitive cancers. So this is a huge, important point. Because what you just said is, most of the time, breast cancers arise in the absence of a BRCA mutation or some yeah. other mutation. Yeah. And this is an example yeah. of where you can have hypermethylation, yes. too much methylation, of this tumor suppressor gene like BRCA, yes. and be at a greater risk yes. of developing breast cancer. Yeah. So you may not have the mutation, but if you have hypermethylation, yeah, yeah. that it, increases your risk. You're shutting down the activity of that all-important surveillance protein. And it actually has a lot of roles. It's a big player. It's really important. And we see this across the board. It's a very cool, very active area of research looking at the epigenetics in cancer. And we see detox genes. Glutathionase transferase actually gets hypermethylated and shut down. And it's been shown to be associated with um, genitourinary cancers, a lot of research in, in, in prostate cancer. That's fascinating. So it's inhibiting one of our main... Um, enzymes involved in detoxing, and then we see increased cancer associated with it. Huge. Uh, it is. It's huge. And we could go on and on. So the other piece that can happen is hypomethylation. Mm -hmm. And so this, these are genes that are turned on that we don't want on. Um, so oncogenes, the genes that can promote cancer, are in that tumor microenvironment hypomethylated and on. Actually, cancer, you know, cancer's able to go in there, kind of harness our own, you know, uh, uh, enzymes, our own um, epigenetic machinery uh, for their own nefarious ends, right? And hypermethylate things they don't want, genes they don't want on, and hypomethylate genes that they do want on. We know from the research that's really coming out like gangbusters at this point is that there's much that we can do, or I should say it appears like there is much that we can do. We need many more human trials. And so again, I'm extremely excited that I'm able to kind of pull from the science, a lot of it in animal studies, a lot of it in in vitro studies, and put it together in a, in a human population. Well, it's huge. I mean, this is such an important research gap that you're addressing. I feel like... You know, we've been in, in kind of this overly simplified period of time yeah. where people look at, you know, MTHFR status and just, you know, start throwing methylated right. folate. Right, right, right. So what I love is that you're looking yeah. at kind of lifestyle medicine. You're looking yeah. at nutrition. You're looking at these other approaches. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So that we can assess the effect on the methylome. Well, the reason that I'm doing this, the, the reason that I came to this is because, you know, I started as a clinician, I was reading the literature on the, this phenomena of hypermethylation of the epigenome. If you look at any chronic disease, you'll see this, what they call differential methylation or aberrant methylation. You'll see hyper and hypo. You'll, it's just imbalanced. It's kind of messed up in this chronic condition. Most of the research though is in cancer. And there's these important tumor suppressor genes are hypermethylated and shut down. But we know in our functional medicine world and with people interested in methylation, they tend to push it forward. They tend to think I have bad methylation because I have an MTHFR mutation or you know any of the myriad ones. I need to take these 
active methyl donors, methylated folate, B12, et cetera. It doesn't even have to be methylated. It can become methylated in the body. So I think we were potentially pushing methylation too far. Mm -hmm. And as a clinician, I had to ask myself, could I be doing something that I don't want to in my patients? This is so beautiful. So I just want to pause there because I I feel like that's such a foundational question for for us as clinicians, you know, to kind of periodically take a pause and say, could I be doing harm? Like, is this thought process... Yeah. Not serving the greater good. Yeah. Like, is is this a flawed process? Yeah. I mean, we tend to think with nutrients that, you know, we're, we're safe, you know, really for the most part, um, especially B vitamins. You know, they're water-soluble. You take too many, you pee them out. But we know, and it, especially when we look at folic acid fortification of grains, now for the most part, that's a public health um, absolute win, I mean, because mm-hmm. we have reduced the incidence of birth defects considerably. So we want to look at that as a, as a really good thing. However, we also have an unwitting population that's been loaded up on folic acid. And we can see in some cases that it appears to perhaps move certain cancers you know, forward, particularly colon cancer. There's some research out on that. And actually, there's some suggestion around breast cancer as well. Functional medicine clinicians will say, well, I don't use folic acid. I'm using natural folates, methylated folates or folinic, et cetera. But that's actually not the point. It isn't the folic acid. It's, a, it's the ability for it to become active and then go on and methylate, you know, and imbalance the epigenome and, again, inhibit tumor suppressor genes and some of the other genes involved. So I, I, I do think we need to maybe pause and sort of go back to uh, – well, prescribing when we know that there's a clear need. I use B vitamins in my practice all the time. I don't want this to scare people off from using the toolkit of all important nutrients. Um, but just be mindful, you know, yeah. have an endpoint. Well, you- this is, I think it goes back also to kind of a foundational approach. And then you start to get into these subtleties, like the yeah. nuances, yep. like what's happening with the epigenome, what's yes. happening with yep. methylation. And right now we don't have, we can't analyze the epigenome yet. So, you know, I'm inferring a little bit. I've been somebody who's practiced fairly aggressively. You know, I would dose my supplements high. I think actually you're much more modest in your dose. I think you're, you're naturally more conservative, which I think is a really good thing, but I would just kind of turn the volume up on certain supplements. And for me, it was an important pause. The other piece is that we can profoundly impact methylation using micro using diet and there's no research other than food fortification program there's no research elsewhere that shows you know greens and some healthy sources of methyl donors being associated with cancer at all right and then again also you pointed out the fact that we can um, cast this wider net and get into lifestyle changes sleeping exercise etc and all of those things have a really healthy impact on the epigenome absolutely So as we start to wind up, I want to get a sense of your greatest challenge right now and then your greatest joy. Okay. All right. That's pretty cool. Um, My greatest challenge, it's extraordinarily rewarding, this field. Um, It's important, the work that we're doing. I love the human beings that I get to connect with every day. Because we're so inspired to be actually, you know, together, 
changing the trajectory, the global trajectory of health and wellness. And I think also the ecology of the planet. I mean, I really think it's tied in. So it's a, it's a cellular, you know, energetic commitment for me. So my greatest challenge in that, believe it or not, would come from the richness of it. And how do I juggle all of the myriad things that I'm doing, the research project and my clinical practice and my education and my writing and stuff like that. It's a big deal. And I have, um, I have needed to put it down considerably because as you know, I am a mom. <laughs> I'm a new mom. And so without question, the greatest joy for me is this human, this human being that I've got. That's my joy. I love it. Yeah. I remember when I was in medical school, there was a, I had a mentor who had a couple of kids and I asked her, when's the best time to have children? You know, is it during medical school? Is mm. it residency? Is it you mm. know, when you're in practice? And she said, there is no good time. <laughs> like you just, wow. you have to, you, just you have to it. just commit. You just yeah. do it. And on the one hand, that kind of made me sad. On the other hand, yeah. I thought, well, I guess, you know, we have to change the structure yes. so that it allows us to, to yeah. pursue all these passions that we have yeah. and to transform our broken healthcare system and like yeah, do yeah, all yeah, these yeah. things that are so important. And we also have to be so compassionate and gentle to ourselves as we go through this transition and become a parent. So any final words that you want to share with our listener about where we're heading with functional medicine, yeah. with where you're heading, with the work that you're doing, with what you're most passionate about. I think in my course of teaching, people will um, have an idea that they need to manifest functional medicine in a certain way. You know, maybe they want to be lecturing, maybe they want to be writing books, et cetera, et cetera. Those are great things. And if they're called to do them, by all means, go for it. But, you know, being a, clinic, a clinician seeing patients day in, day out, or working locally, um, or blogging, or really whatever it is, some combination thereof, it, it's powerful and important. Being somebody who's not a physician or not a clinician, um, getting the new products out into the world, or developing the new laboratory technologies. You know, any there's just so many ways we can come into the conversation. You know, being a health coach or being an ex, uh, an, an expert in individualized exercise prescriptions. So I just want I want folks who are coming into this field to be really excited about the possibility and know that there is much that we can do and that can be very reflective of your own inner passion. That's certainly what I've found for myself. All of us, however we manifest, are participating in changing the trajectory and changing the flow of the river. So I would just say step into the conversation in the way that you feel most inspired and actualize that. And that will be a gift for all of us. So do it, you know, just do it and trust. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Kara. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for this episode of The Practice. You'll find extensive show notes, including links and supportive materials over at thepracticepodcast.tv. While you're there, explore other topics and use the Ask and Answer button to ask your burning questions and give your insights about the topic. After all, the future of medicine lies in dialogue, not dogma. Let's transform medicine together by connecting on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find all the links at thepracticepodcast.tv.
This podcast, including any related materials such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. This podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship and should not be considered a substitute for the independent professional judgment of any physician or healthcare professional regarding the appropriate course of action for a particular patient or individual. Metagenics does not make any guarantees regarding the accuracy, completeness, or usefulness of this podcast for any particular purpose. Listeners may use this podcast at their own risk and patients should not disregard or delay seeking advice from their healthcare providers based on the content of this podcast. Participation through the ask and answer button is optional and no participant should feel obligated to provide personal details including about any diagnosis, symptoms or other health related information. Neither Metagenics Institute nor any of its affiliates seek this information and it is not necessary to participate in the dialogue regarding this podcast. The podcast presenter's views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of its research partners and collaborators collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Listening to this podcast does not obligate you to purchase, use, recommend, or prescribe any Metagenics or Metagenics Institute products or services, including their educational materials. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Unless approved by Metagenics Institute, this podcast must be used only for personal, non-commercial purposes. This podcast has no independent economic value and is intended to comply with all applicable laws. It may be rescinded, revoked, or amended at any time without notice. Listeners who are patients should talk to their healthcare providers if they have any questions regarding the content discussed in this podcast. Listeners who are healthcare professionals may obtain more information by visiting metagenicsinstitute.com, calling 888 690-8500 or emailing med ed at metagenicsinstitute.com.